We are in John chapter 6. I think you guys knew that already. I think we've, we've lived here for a little while. Last week we hit on some hard topics. Today we're going to continue on some hard topics. We're going to hit on some deep theological concepts. John's main purpose in giving us this book is nothing new. It is to identify Jesus to the world. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. And today we are unpacking a very significant piece of theology, a very important thing that, that I hold to, that we hold to, according to our statements of belief. I believe the Scripture shows this is very true. Uh, I, I won't ever be swayed or preach against it or, or preach differently than what we see in God's Word here. And we hold that this is true because of it's the central teaching of all of, of all of Scripture from Genesis through Revelation. The, the central teaching is the sovereignty of God, that He is God above all things. He is in control of all things. He rules all things. He knows all things. He's all-powerful. This is central. Most of us say that we believe that, but there's points in with, with, in, inside of our theology that we decide not to believe it. We kind of turn it off. Well, today we're going to hit some of those like we did last week, and um, we'll spend some time there, and I just pray that you're gracious, and, and, and I do the very best I can explaining some of this. So before we, uh, before we jump into it, let's, let's read right through this passage of Scripture. We're going to start in verse 35, just because it gives us the reminder of last week what we did. So um, John 6, verse 35 says, I am the, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, that I have seen, that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. For all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 41. So the, Jew, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. He said, this is, not, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I came down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he he will live forever. And the bread that will give for the I'm sorry, and the bread that I will give for the life of the word world is my flesh. God stand forth this morning, Jesus, as we study your word. Spirit teach us, humble us with what you have. Help us to not focus on our on anything besides what you teach us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Context, they followed him around. He was compassionate for them, right? We've read through all this. He, he spent time with people. He fed the masses. He fed the thousands with a couple of pieces of bread and a couple of, loaves, or a couple of fish. Uh, they followed him. They were looking for more material things from him, for more physical, temporal things that they could get from him. The next day he came to the synagogue in Capernaum. This is where he is. And he's teaching and he's preaching and he's working with these people. And, and, and we see this. It's continued from last week. It's the same sermon. 
that he had. I think I should do that. Just keep preaching until next Sunday and see if you guys stay. Um, yeah, I know. Gasp. So this sermon is, though, Jesus presenting himself. So if anyway I do something besides that, I ruin what Jesus is doing here. So we're going to have to just present Jesus as himself and what he teaches about himself and what he teaches about his Father through this passage. We, last week we saw that he said, I am the bread of life. The bread that hu- satisfies hunger of the body is something that is, is temporal and momentary, but the bread that satisfies the soul is forever. It's a quest. It, he, he is the fulfillment of everyone's quest for meaning, their significance, and their eternity. He is the, what completely satisfies humans. We talked about that last week. He is the final thing we need. You know, he wanted, uh, they wanted him to be equal with Moses as they start to complain. If you know the story in the wilderness, Moses was simply the leader and God was the feeder. G- Moses stood there and before the people because God placed him there. But, but Jesus, or God himself, sent the manna from heaven to feed the th- hundreds of thousands of Jews that were in the wilderness. Not, not Moses, but they compared Jesus to Moses. And they said, well, you did something, but how much more can you do? See, Jesus responds to them he essentially responds this you don't need physical food you need spiritual food and you need me that's what he says to them so as we read through this passage there are three things there's three minor segments of this passage the first one is the murmuring they murmur and they whine what's new right the second one is jesus reproach of their murmuring and the third is jesus rebuttal and reiteration of his message so that's what we're going to see here today as we study through this passage there's a lot packed into this passage. There's a lot in these nine verses. I thought I was going to go through 55 today. Yeah, right. Actually, I thought I was going to go through 60 today, and then I actually broke it down three weeks ago and started studying it harder. And I said, no way. It's just too much. So let's start with verse 41, and we'll break down each verse as we go through. We'll spend some Quality time in verse 44. As you saw it when I was reading it through the screen, it stopped in green by itself, I hope. Did it look like green to you guys? Verse 44 was, would have been on there all by itself. We're going to hang out on there for a little while. And then we're going to finish the passage, and then we're actually going to come back to verse 44 and discuss it at the end. Because this is too big not to deal with. This is too deep. This is too, too, um, too much truth for us to glaze over and to, to, to whitewash So let's start in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him. The Jews, obviously, is a negative term that John uses. We've discussed this before. It's the opposing religious and sect leaders that are around Jesus at the time. Okay, And they're grumbling about him, that him is Jesus, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. See, here's the deal. They had unbelief in their hearts. And so they can't see Jesus for being Jesus because they are blocking, they they have a block in front of them that is keeping them from knowing who he is. They're blinded by this disbelief. See, you, you can't simply feed them and then come to know him. I, I found this, this passage, in this, this concept, in, a, in one of the commentaries I read about this passage. It says, Jesus fed them, and yet they still didn't believe he could make them not hungry again. And just as a side note for what we're doing here at Crossroads, that made me think of our Thanksgiving meal. We're going to feed people. I'm excited. I love that we do this. I love that it started last year. I love that we're going to do it again this year. But man, if we fill their bellies and we don't make sure they know something about Jesus, they're only filled momentarily. I wanted that to be our prayer about as we head into 
the next two weeks, guys. I want that to be a real prayer for us. Okay, let's get back to this passage. So Jesus here obviously is talking about spiritual bread. He, he, he could have looked at him and said, hey, let me tell you about this woman at the well I met. <laughs> I told her about water. She got it. Where are you guys missing it at? <laughs> he didn't do that because he's loving and gracious. And he's not like you and I who would have, you know, well, at least maybe like me, and I would have put it in their face and said, can't you figure this out? He's talking about this spiritual thing, but they can only focus on the f- physical. This crowd is mad because Jesus claimed to be the bread of life, and that doesn't help them at the moment. That doesn't fill anything in their bellies. This crowd is mad because he claimed he came from heaven, and to them that makes him a lunatic. I thought about titling this message. If it wasn't so, so, so important, the words that are in here, I thought about titling this message, Just Joe's Son. Just Joe's son. Because when we look at the next verse, in verse 42, we hear a very logical argument from these folks. They said, it is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say I come down from heaven? See, here they are. They're taking this claim of Jesus, and they're going, no way. He's a lunatic. He's a liar. We know who he is. He's just Joe's kid. It's logical. There is some logic to it. But their logic is what's blocking their belief. They can't see that he came down from heaven because they know he's from Nazareth. You don't know what Nazareth is? The city Jesus grew up in, okay? They're like, this is the pimple-faced kid in the carpenter shop, isn't it? Because they can't see him. They can't see past their own, their, own, their own ideas and their own thoughts. And Jesus actually told us this in John chapter 4. In verse 44, he says, A prophet has no honor in his own country. He was talking about himself. My people aren't going to accept me. He understood this, and and he he was foreshadowing exactly these events that were going to take place when he began to teach people who he is. This happens, by the way, every single time we mention Jesus, and it will happen every single time we mention Jesus for all of time. There will be people that will never accept it no matter what. There will be people who accept that it's not just easy. It's too easy to know Jesus. There will be people who say, I can't accept it because it's too hard to follow the rules. There will be people who can't accept it because I don't believe in a God. There's going to be people who won't accept it because they have an ideology that's somehow different from what God's Word teaches. They might claim a portion of Jesus. They might like things about Jesus. They say, well, he's a good teacher, but they're not going to claim him because he is not honored in his own country. Guys, we are the representation of his own country at this moment in this world. We are Christ's church. We are the ones to be sharing it. He's not going to be accepted no matter how much you and I are accepted. And by the way, when we're walking with Christ, we're not accepted in this right now. As a matter of fact, in this room right now, I believe somebody or somebody's in here because there's enough of us in here for me to go, there's a good chance we don't all know Christ at this moment. Somebody in this room already is going, ah, just blocking it out. I get that. I understand that. That's what Jesus is dealing with here. So the deal is that we will either embrace Jesus as God or reject him and push him away. There's no neutral ground. There's no middle or gray. There's no muddled up section that we can play in. Either Jesus is, or Jesus is not. He's God. He's not God. He's true bread from heaven. He's not true bread from heaven. He's the Son. He's not the Son. He's the Savior. He's not the Savior. He's the Messiah and the Christ, or He's not the Messiah. That's it. There is no middle section. The Bible's clear about it. John's really clear about it as we go through as he compares and contrasts things like light and dark and love and hate all throughout his book. 
all throughout this gospel that God ordained him to write and inspired these words. This is why we pray and we ask for Jesus' help because we are those same people that are sometimes blinded to understanding the truth of who Jesus is. And, and some people are just simply blinded to it because they're not going to want to change and become like Jesus. It's hard. It's hard when you set up a lifestyle that doesn't reflect Jesus. So this is what they do. They start to talk in verse 43 and says, Jesus answered them and says, do not grumble amongst yourselves. <laughs> Whoops. He heard you. He knows what's going on. As I thought about this, this seems to be the way of the Jews. Reminds me of the Old Testament when, when they're in the wilderness and they grumble against Moses, though God has provided and provided and provided and shown amazing things. They grumble at one point and a golden calf jumps out of a fire. You remember that one? They didn't create it. It jumped out of the fire. They grumbled and lied. and That was a terrible lie. But this, is, this just seems to be the way of this religious group that is against Jesus. They grumble. Hmm, church. I wish I could hide behind the pulpit because we grumble. We complain and we whine about places and people and things they've said to us. If, if we see Jesus for being Jesus, our grumbling should stop not just toward Jesus and his word, but toward one another. Now, this isn't about one another. I just wanted to add that in there. Instead of being like, hey, we see your power, Jesus. We saw what you did. It's amazing. It's amazing that you called on the Father to bless this fish and this bread, and all of a sudden we all ate. We see your power. We want to know your purpose. We want to hear what you have to say to us. We want to believe. This would have changed everything, wouldn't it? Mindset. Faith. Following. Jumping after Christ. Grumbling changes all of that. It ruins all. All of that. Instead, they grumbled amongst themselves. The one who knew everything was standing before them. And they talked about themselves. Amongst themselves. And they had a chance to talk to Jesus. We have a chance to talk to Jesus every day. That's an amazing promise. But they had this chance to talk to Jesus. Instead, they're pushing away, and they're grumbling. So that's our picture. That's where we are. And here's what Jesus, much like he says in verse 37, I want to read verse 37 to you again. I've got to be on the right page to do it. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Verse 44 is a very similar reiteration of this comment. It says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up the last day. These two verses, along also with verse 40, help us to define the concept and the truth that God is drawing us unto himself. That salvation is from God, and it's a work of God where he pulls us to himself. It is not of our own doing. It is not a, a choice we run out and make. It is not hamburger versus cheeseburger. It is Jesus, through, through the, it's the Holy Spirit doing the work of the Father and drawing us to himself. We could spend months on this one verse. Somebody told me I should speed up through John. I think I could just stay here for a while. That's how difficult this verse is. We think about the, 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 the parable of the lost sheep. 
And the parable tells us that the sheep, that the shepherd comes back and he counts he's missing a sheep. And as I read through that parable and I think about that parable, I want to ask you a question. Does it ever say in that parable that sheep came wandering and looking for that shepherd? Not once. I think about the prodigal son, and we, misunder- we misinterpret this passage if we're not careful. The story of the prodigal son should be the story of the loving, gracious, caring father who's chasing after his son looking for him. That's what it really should be. Because the words in, the, in that text that say a long way off doesn't mean he's looking down the driveway. It means he has left his home to find his child. The shepherd and the father. Guess who they're supposed to signify? Jesus. What is Jesus doing if we are his sheep? He is not out there waiting for us to meander to him and graze up a path that goes, takes us to his feet. He comes and seeks us out. He draws us unto himself. He calls us out by name. We see that in, in John 14, I believe. He calls us out by name and we know him. We are drawn to him. This verse says, anyone who come, No one can come unless the Father who sent me draws him. We are a sinful people who cannot change our own minds. We cannot change and correct our hearts. We cannot even understand how to pursue Jesus unless we are being called by the Father to do so. Right, it's difficult. It's difficult, and we don't teach this this way enough. We need to understand that it is impossible for us to do good and to find Christ based on something called total depravity. Now, I'm not going to spend time making big definitions. Basically, it means... We have sin in our hearts that block us from ever finding God without God's intervention. We have no good except for the fact that we have a God working in this earth to try to make things good for us and drawing us into himself. Those who, those who are out there that do good things, and we can say there are good things that are done by people who seemingly are good people but are not believers, the image of Christ, the image of creation that God is choosing to use them to do things. I know how hard that sounds to understand. It's going to get harder. You ready? Much has been said and much has been mentioned about the, the idea of man's free will and free choice. But the Bible never teaches us that concept. Never one place is that mentioned in Scripture. I wish it was. Actually, maybe I'm glad it's not because then I'm less confused. There is the idea of man's responsibility in call to repentance. And this is what has been twisted to be called free will. Free will actually has been brought from the Old Testament idea into the New Testament based on free will offerings that were given to address people's sin in the Old Testament. And not only sin, just worship. But the problem is, Scripture is very clear. Like I said, either you believe that Jesus is or we believe that Jesus is not. Also, there is no middle ground. We are either a slave to sin or we are set free in Christ. We are either a slave to this old man or we are in the, 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 the bosom, in the hand, in the, in the care of Christ, and we are growing in that. It doesn't mean we'll never sin again. Don't, give me, don't, don't misunder, misinterpret that. But there is no middle there either. With every word that comes out, with every choice we make, with everything we do in this world, it is either us enslaving ourselves to sin or enslaving ourselves to Christ. There's nothing, there's nowhere in the middle. There's no free-wielding middle ground. 
where people can go through a process of choosing God. Now, let me make, make clear. I'm not saying that everybody's salvation experience is the same. I'm not saying that everybody hears the word the same way, that God draws them all the same way. Hey, I'm a dummy. I'm a hardhead. He had to hit me a lot. He had to make things rough for me. I wasn't smart like some of these people at 10, 11, 12, 13 years old accept Christ and then live for him. I, come on now, I didn't do that. Our salvation experiences can be different. And that's, that's something that we see when people are seeking Christ. But, but it's very clear that when people are seeking God, it's because God is pursuing them. We pray this. We, we, it's hard because we actually believe this if we say that God is sovereign. If we say that he is all-powerful and all-knowing and, and omnipresent, then we have to say that these things are true. Because if not, then his death is unnecessary on the cross because we can draw ourselves to him and get saved on our own. I know it's tough. But God must act on our behalf. He must draw us in for us to ever want to praise him, for us to ever want to love him, for us to ever want to pursue him, for any of these things. I love what verse 37 says. He'll raise us up on the last day. This is the promise that has never been made outside of Jesus' own words. He says it again in 44. And it's our hope for knowing him later. We'll be safe in him. We'll be guaranteed a resurrection in his life. But the, the deal is that God is totally responsible for our salvation. But we are... You ready? You ready? Okay, it's already hard enough. Here's the harder part. We are responsible to respond. There is an act of responsibility. And because we aren't, aren't the, um, the f- infinite wisdom God is, we can't understand responsibility and choice in separate hands. It's difficult. It's difficult for me to want to skim over this passage of Scripture and not preach it. This is the first for me to preach through a passage like this. This is tough. But I want us to know who Jesus is. He is the Son of God doing the work of God and and accepting those unto himself that God is calling to him. And here's the issue. How these two things work together, I don't know exactly. As a matter of fact, if I were to ask you if you understood how the rapture was going to take place, which most of us would say we believe in a rapture, you would have to say no. Because the Bible doesn't clearly define it. If I were to ask you, do you believe in the Trinity, which as a church we claim to believe in the Trinity, that, that means there's a th- three-in-one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want one of you to explain it to me in a way that's not a childish way that the, the, the belittles who Jesus is. Right? We can't always understand every piece of Scripture. We have to know it. We have to acknowledge Christ and his greatness in it. We have to acknowledge the Father's sovereignty in these things. But we can't always wrap our minds around it. I cannot, no matter how hard I try, and I have tried this. matter of fact, I was in a class um, in seminary that was simply based on the Trinity, and I walked out of there more frustrated and confused than I did knowledgeable. I know all the passages to talk about. I know how to twist, put them together and how they look and how we see it from beginning to end. And I know that how Jesus is talked about in the Old Testament. And I know how the Holy Spirit is represented in the Old Testament. And I know how God the Father... doesn't matter. I still can't wrap my mind around that idea. And I'm okay with that. Now, if you know me, I'm not okay with stuff like that very often. You bring me an idea. You bring me a concept. You tell me, hey, this is the newest... <laughs> um, um, I don't know, fad diet. 
I'm going to go home and research it. I'm going to look it up. I'm going to know everything I can know about it. There's somebody here recently has done something like that, and they know because I've had good conversations with them. They're like, why did you learn this? I don't know. I had to. I could not know about it. That's who I am. To the frustration of most people that know me. Because unintentionally, I come off as a know-it-all sometimes when I do that stuff. And I don't even purposely do that. I just, I just like knowledge. I don't want to know this. I'm okay with standing here and going, I do not fully understand how God's sovereignty works when he draws people unto himself, but man's responsible to respond. And at the same time, Jesus says that it's available to all men. And what's beautiful about that is my command from Jesus is simply this. Go and tell people. It's not understand it all. It's not be able to explain this and write a doctrinal statement about it. It's not be able to, to exegete every passage of Scripture that ever talks about the two that may, and of course one of the favorite things that people to say is, nope, they don't, the Bible's not cohesive and it, and it contradicts itself because these two, co- no, we can't understand it. But if you read it as a whole, it never contradicts itself. Verse 37, verse 40, and verse 44 work together that teach us that God is sovereign over our salvation Verse 37 speaks of the Father giving people over to Jesus. Verse 40 tells a man's response and his responsibility. And then verse 44 concludes that the drawing of God is necessary for faith in Jesus. You ever seen a dog chase its tail? That's what it felt like just now, right? John MacArthur. If you guys know who John MacArthur is, probably one of the foremost theologians right now. That's alive. And he writes this about it. And I love that someone as wise and gifted as God has given him the ability to be can say the same thing that I basically just said. No, I don't know. But he says this. Verse 37 emphasizes the, the human responsibility in salvation. Although God is sovereign, he works through faith. So that man must trust Jesus as Messiah, the Son of God, who alone offers the only way to salvation. However, even faith is a gift from God. Guys, I know. I know what we're doing. Romans 12. In verse, verse number uh, uh, three. For by grace given to me, I say, every everyone among you, <clears throat> among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now I'm not going to read out of Ephesians two right there, but that's the same same concept. The faith that we have is also a gift from God. So for us, intellectually harmonizing. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man is humanly impossible. Exhale. Right? But perfectly resolved in the infinite mind of God. Here's the point. We have to trust him. We don't have to know it all. We trust and we obey. But there is no way for us to come to God without God intervening on our behalf. If so, why would Judas, why would Judas betray Jesus? What is it that made Judas the outsider? What is it that made that for Judas? I don't know. God and his sovereignty understands it. And his will and his justice and his love and his, and his righteousness are all still perfect. It's simply the fact that we can only understand a certain amount. But what we have to understand 
is that God is teaching us that he has drawn us unto himself, especially those who have made taken that human responsibility and know that we have Christ and we have repented and we have turned to him. It's because he drew us to himself. That should that should be for us a lifetime of gracious gratefulness. A lifetime of hope that should grant, grant us. Let's move on. Verse 44. It is written in the prophets that they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Literally it says that every man who knows Christ, knows God, was, is only because God taught them. There's no face-to-face experience. But Jesus has only, uh, that, that he has taught them through the Old Testament and through his teachings, and now Jesus, through his own words, is trying to teach them about the Father and teach them about himself so that they can come to know him because only he has seen Jesus, or only he has seen the face of God. Matter of fact, we know that the face of God is never even seen when he visited the earth. Well, maybe by Adam and Eve, we're not sure. The Bible doesn't say clearly. It says they walked with him, but there still might have been, there was no sin at first, so maybe the veil wasn't there. Um, in his perfect, per- his perfect creation, who knows what that was like. I'm grateful that one day I will. But we know that Moses didn't get to see him. Matter of fact, God's glory got so close to Moses that he glowed for a while. That's crazy. I tried to become Moses one time for Halloween. I popped glow sticks and rubbed it all over my face. That's a true story. Verse 47, Jesus begins to speak about us again. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. What a promise. The filthiest of all of us, the filthiest in our minds, wait, wait a minute, let's be clear, the filthiest of sinners that we think are filthy sinners, the filthiest, of, the filthiest of all sinners that we deem are the filthiest. Because in God's eyes, we're all the filthiest sinners because sin is sin. If we're short by one mark, we're short by all of them. But in our minds, you guys could come up with a picture of who you think might be the filthiest sinner you've ever heard of. And if God calls him unto himself and he in faith responds, he then or she then can have eternal life. Okay, so Brandon, how does that excite you? How is that fun to know? How, how can you take the idea that God must call people unto himself for them to have it? I don't have to know who it is. All I can do is get excited and tell people about Jesus because what if it is? What if they're the ones? What if they're not the ones who have hardened their own hearts to God? This is a promise that, 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 that just gives us, it gives us joy and hope and it puts to fears um, all the ideas about eternity and death. It, it stops them. It's, 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 a, it's a resurrection of joy about our salvation within us. It should give us such encouragement, not only for us, but for those that we can tell about Jesus. Now, the, simp- the, the simple gift of eternal life should not be the only reason for salvation, it's, 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 it's simply part of what we get out of it. The real thing we get is a connection to God the Father. I'm telling you now, I believe wholeheartedly that if, if when I died, if I was done, if it was over at death and there was no soul, there was no afterlife, there was nothing else to me, I was done. There's a theory out there that teaches that. But if that's what it was true, and I didn't get eternal life. I didn't know what, he- never heard of heaven. It wasn't even a possibility. The connection to God the Father, the hope and the joy that it gives me, to have someone that I can go to in prayer, to have someone that I can praise, man, that's worth salvation. 
It's not just a simple fire insurance. It's not simply a return on our investment for, re, for, our, um, for what we think we're getting through, through Jesus. It is a connection to the Father. Man, that's amazing. Verse 48, he reiterates, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. Is it, yeah, you mentioned Moses a minute ago. All the manna he ate. Um, do you know where he is? <laughs> He's dead. That's my sarcastic way of announcing that. But that's what Jesus says here. You're right. He had manna, but he died in that same wilderness because the bread of manna, that did not sustain them. It wasn't a spiritual thing. It was simply physical, spiritual bread, the bread from heaven, the bread of life is way more significant than any kind of bread that falls from heaven that simply is to fill our bellies. I think we can sit here today and understand that. I don't think Jesus is saying it over and over again simply to, to say it over and over again. I don't think he's repeating himself simply because he likes the sound of his own voice. I don't think he's repeating himself because he likes calling himself the bread of life. I think he's repeating himself because we are hard-headed sinners just like these Jews he was standing in front of and we need to be reminded day in and day out that the physical that he provides is wonderful. The spiritual is greater. Matter of fact, the point of the manna in the Old Testament, though it was a physical fulfillment, it was not a physical provision. It was not simply for physical provision. The point of manna was spiritual Manna was pointing the Jews to Jesus. Manna was pointing them to Jesus. Who do you think the angel of the Lord that provided manna is? Jesus. And then he says, I am the bread of life. How many times have I said that from page one to page one, whatever it is, it's all Jesus. It's nothing. There's other stories. There's other things. There's, there's ideas about the judges. There's, there's Saul when he becomes king. It all points to Jesus. And the Jews missed it. They were worried about that manna fulfilling their bellies. They didn't see Jesus. He wants to satisfy their souls. Verse 50. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. The bread is Jesus, guys. This bread is Jesus, and he will sustain throughout life and throughout all eternity because he alone is absolutely sufficient. He alone is all-fulfilling. And we, when, we, when we take that calling on our hearts and we respond in repentance, he satisfies our souls. I love John 10.10. 10. It says, I have come to give you life and life abundantly. That doesn't mean things. That means his spirit. That's how he satisfies. Now we spent a, a long time on verse 44 today comparatively to everything else we've done. And we're going to go back. And we're going to spend a few more minutes on verse 44. I want to give us two meanings, two I mental ideas. And I want to give us three um, takeaways from the truth that we find here. So verse 44 once again says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. There's two things here, folks. There's two possibilities. Number one is that we do not believe this. 
black and white, okay? So number one is, we don't believe this. We do not, no one can come to Jesus unless God draws them. So the first idea here is we don't believe that. We have to say that God draws all and only some come. But that would thwart the verse 37 that Jesus' own words would. That would make Jesus a liar in verse 37. He says, whoever the Father calls comes to me and I, and I take. Okay, so there, there we've got to make sure we understand that. We either have to believe this or we don't believe this. So, so God's drawing everyone. It means there's no decisive factor. There's no reason. There's no responsibility for humans. But yet the, Jesus told us there's a responsibility to repent. The call makes it possible. Those who come to Christ do it because of an impulsive call on their heart to come to Jesus. Do we believe that or not? So we can either say he calls them all and only some come, which negates what he said before about all who the Father calls or draws. Or we can believe it wholeheartedly and we can buy in regardless of our understanding level. That we can say that no one can come unless he's drawn and all those that he draws do come. That's what I see Scripture teaching us. Because his drawing of our heart is perfectly executed and it's done with perfection. And within that drawing would be the placement of faith on us to give us the opportunity to be responsible to respond to Jesus. No, it's hard for me to comp- say these words and it's hard for me to understand these words and it's hard for you to comprehend these words. This clearly means that not everyone is drawn to Jesus. At least not in the same way. But it means that not everyone is drawn. So what's Jesus mean? I believe that Jesus wants us to know that God's drawing is the decisive move of our salvation. Is the decisive move of our salvation. This is absolutely and totally not in conflict with someone coming to Jesus. Like we say when we say come make a decision for Jesus. Those decisions are drawn by his drawing. Let's look at the concept that he is the reason that we come to know him. Without him being the reason, without his drawing on our hearts, without his work in us, without the Holy Spirit doing something through us, we can't come. And let's look at some four pas- three passages, I'm sorry. And although there are hundreds in this Bible that we could go to, legitimately hundreds, I'm going to use four that are, I say four every time, three, because I took one out, that's why, that are in immediately, immediate context with this book. The first one is right here in our, in our chapter. We've read it twice already. John chapter 6 and verse 37. All who the Father gives to me come to me, and whoever comes to me will never, I will never cast out. All the Father co- gives will come. Giving equals drawing. Drawing him in to himself. Everyone that the Father gives to Jesus are those that he is drawing to Jesus. We pray things like, God, prepare their hearts. We pray this for kids when they come to vacation Bible school. I pray this every Sunday. God, soften our hearts. When I know that I'm going to go talk to somebody about, about the Word and about, 
about what's going on in, in, in their lives. I said, God, soften their hearts. Prepare them. This is before I even somewhat understood this concept in this passage. I'm, what I'm saying there is, God, draw them unto yourself. Not unto me. Don't, don't follow after me. We saw recently in this country a very um, um, high-profile um, teacher and pastor and someone who I actually enjoyed listening to as a preacher and his, his following got too big and, and he, he, he became too big for him himself and he allowed sin in and, and, and he's fallen apart right now and his church plants are falling apart and, and we're just praying God restore those and hold them because they're doing great work. But why? Because at some point, sadly, I believe that he, he forgot to say, draw them unto yourself. See, we, we, we ask for these things, but do we understand what we're asking for? Do we actually believe it? The next passage I want us to look at is John 6, 64 and 65. Something we'll study in a few weeks. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Now, if we're not careful, we're going to say this is only a passage about um, Judas. But the problem is, these are plural words that Jesus is using. He knew from the beginning those, uh, beginning who those were. That, that's a plural form there, who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. There is Judas. And Jesus said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. Here Jesus explains he is explicitly referring back to verse 44 and he explains why there are Judases and why there are betrayers and why there are unbelievers. Some do not believe and they will never believe from the beginning. But we see that God here, the word given, verse 37, equals the word draw and therefore it equals the word granted right here in verse 65. Granted him unless it is granted him by the Father. All these are pointing to the saving work of God on our behalf. None of it is pointing to us drawing ourselves. This simple passage right here blows the idea of universalism, in case you don't know what that is. That's the idea that everyone is going to heaven and Jesus is going to save everyone, no matter who they are, no matter what they believe, no matter what they've done. There's a, for, for the side of our, size of Evansville, there's a decent-sized universalist church in Evansville. I met the leader. She's kind and loving and, and, and sweet, sweet person. And she, 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 is, she would destroy this verse. And this verse would destroy her mind if she bought in and understood it. Because for her, everyone is. Matter of fact, two weeks ago, they had a service called um, The Reason We're Thinking. I think what they, Basically, it was bring whatever philosophy idea you want and we'll tell you why it's right. That's what she told me. It's a sweet person. I pray she finds Jesus, that he draws her out to himself. And then we're going to look at John chapter 8 and verse 47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. That's a hard one. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. That's really hard when someone tells me that, well, I prayed a prayer one time and I know that I believe in Jesus. But I don't hear him. I don't know that he's there. 
And sometimes I'm able to say, hey, did you ever truly repent with your heart? Has he ever changed who you are on the inside? And watch those things happen. And sometimes you just can't. Those people have hardened their hearts to anything being wrong with them. This reminds me again of that sheep. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. And if you don't, it's because you don't know who God is. Here we are. The hear, word hearing is the word being drawn. Is the word being granted. Is the word given to him. These are all pointing to God. Once again, being the sole work in salvation. If you are of God, you hear. If you are given, you come. If you are drawn, then you come to Jesus. It says, all the Father gives me will come. All the Father draws will come. And we come freely without restraint because of the faith that He's planted in us. Because at those moments, we see Him as Lord, Savior, bread, and sufficient. It's the freest we will ever be. Upon salvation, He opens our hearts and makes us rational for the first time in our lives. I believe that's true. And it's all because of His sovereign grace. We are totally dependent on Him for His life-giving salvation, guys. That's what we have to understand. That's why we ought to live in such grateful, con- grateful uh, uh, mindsets when we, when we recognize it's all because of Him and His love for us that He has given us salvation. It's nothing of ourselves. We come to Jesus because He draws us. When a person comes honestly, genuinely, truthfully, faithfully, earnestly, seeking to know Jesus, God reveals himself because God has drawn him out to do that. Those of you who don't know if you're ever there, haven't, haven't felt that, or maybe you're feeling that right now, but you've never taken that moment to buy in full-heartedly. You've never understood the responsibility part, or you've never made the the. the, the the responsibility, a, a real thing, but you feel God pulling on your heart today, maybe he's drawing you. May today be the day you believe in Jesus in this way. Because he's not pulling on you if he doesn't want you to come. And you can wait, you can fight, you can push. And your heart can be turned hard and he can stop calling you out. My hope is that this message amongst us wouldn't be cause, a cause of grumbling and disbelief but of prayer and understanding of a grateful heart that we would reach this world and run out there trying to let them understand how great this salvation is that we have I hope that this doesn't change your views of who Jesus or God are except for to fall more in love with him I hope that it doesn't change your views on his word except for to buy in more more, more fully to who he is and what he's taught us and what he's given us in it I hope that you and I's own reasoning and thoughts aren't so mighty that they push us away from embracing the truth that Jesus teaches us. But I also pray these words shake us, that they shake our foundation to the way we grow more and we search more and we seek more of who He is. Because our wills and our mindsets are not competent in these spiritual things because we are dead, but God and His Spirit and Jesus and His life-giving bread are sufficient where we fall short. And as a believer, let's be reminded that he lived for us perfectly. He died for us willingly. Matter of fact, he was made sin. In his perfection, he was made sin for us. He beat death powerfully. And we ought to be encouraged. 
Don't you see why we sing about love this morning and hope? Because this is the story of love. This is the story of love. We're in it for Him. We're dependent on Him. Let's fall more greatly in love with Him.